I like this time of year because it is March Madness time. And if you're like me, your brackets are already busted, right? And for those of you who don't know what March Madness is, it's a, it's a college basketball tournament that takes place this time every year. It lasts the whole entire month of March. And it's like a one-and-done tournament. So every game is just like on the edge of your seat. And, of course, every year they have this tradition when, when the tournament is over, uh, they'll play this song and show highlights of all the key moments of the tournament. And the song is One Shining Moment, right? And so I thought about that in kind of preparation for this week and, and get to thinking about how life is very similar for all of us and that we have these moments in our life that are defining moments. You know what I'm talking about? They're very similar for a lot of us in many ways. Uh, for me, obviously, this coming next Thursday on the 23rd of March, I will be celebrating with my wife 21 years of marriage. Yeah, thank you. That day in 1996 was a defining moment in my life, a life-changing moment. You know, I don't remember what I wore last week, but I remember that day very vividly. You know, as I was getting ready uh, in the groom's room, as going out, I can remember even just the feel of the room and the, and the church that we were in. I remember very vividly the doors opening in the back and my wife coming down with her dad. And, and just that whole day, there were just thoughts just can roll in my mind like a movie over and over again. And so I also remember kind of, hey, you know, we were, we were a pretty good looking couple back then too. I mean, you know, everybody in your 20s, you need to know that's the best that you can ever get right there. Okay? I mean, that's, that's pretty good right there. Look at that. I am rocking that Tom Selleck mustache. Right? Um, so that was definitely a defining moment for us. And I was 22 years old. It's kind of hard to believe that 22, I'm just so young. And then another defining moment happened very shortly after that, about three years later, was our first child was born, our daughter Bailey, who is almost uh, 19. She'll be 19 in August. And I remember, as you see in the picture there, when the doctors, they, they obviously she was 6 pounds, 5 ounces, 19 inches long. They put her all on her little things, and they gave her to me, and I'm holding her, and as I'm looking at her, the first thought that comes to my mind as I'm holding my very first child in my arms, I thought, holy crud, I have got to grow up fast. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, parents? I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. You can read every book, which is what we did, but nothing can prepare you for the moment when you are holding your child for the very first time and you realize you're responsible now for this life. This life is completely dependent upon you. Well, it was a great day and a great week, and, and, and God really moved in our family that week. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I remember the time when you, when you have your first child, and they come, and they're going to take the pictures. Y'all remember that? And so my wife had this beautiful little outfit all picked out, and, and of course, they took her back and, and took all the pictures, and we're kind of waiting. I mean, you, this is, you only do this once, correct, for each child. I mean, this, this is it. This is their first picture in the history of their life and in the world that will ever exist. There will be no other first picture. And so they bring her back to us, and, and of course, they bring the pictures, and we're kind of looking there in that moment. And, and I want to show you this picture. As it, she's laying there, and she's got this beautiful little, and she's cute, I know, it's so precious. And she's laying there, and we're looking at this picture, and there's the nurse, and here's my wife, and I'm right here. And then I think the nurse kind of went something like, oh. And my wife was like, oh. Yes, that's our daughter, Bailey, in her first picture, flipping off the world. Yeah. 
You can never have that moment back, people. And of course, I think something, I think my wife looked at the nurse and said, she's just like her father. <laughs> I promised my daughter, though, that I wouldn't leave you with the image of her flipping off the world. So I definitely need to show you a, a better picture of her when she's a little older and cuter. And, and now that I have the chance with a 16-foot tall screen, I've got to brag on my kids, right? So just bear with me. You do the same thing. But then 17 months later, uh, God blessed us. It wasn't planned that way, but we're glad it happened that way. God blessed us with our second child, and that's our son Brody. When Brody was born, he was, get this, are you ready? Nine pounds, four ounces, 22 inches long. I mean, he came out smoking a cigar going, what's up, Dad? I mean, this kid was huge. You know that little, that little bucket thing they put the babies in, and it's all screaming and crying, and they're poking and prodding on it, and, you know, sucking all the things out of their nose and everything. I mean, he's, I'm, sitting, I'm standing there, and I remember this very vividly, all right, this defining moment. And he, no, no joke, he's spilling over this thing. I mean, his legs are all hanging out. His chest is all, this is huge. I'm looking at my wife going, how, how, how did that happen? Now, I'm going to pause right here. Okay, and just on behalf of all men who have ever lived and who have ever existed, ladies, thank you for being the people that give us birth and give us life and procreation because if it were up to men, we would have ceased to exist a long, long time ago. Yes, give them a hand. I mean, I have had my appendix almost ruptured and had to be moved into emergency surgery. I have had a kidney stone lodged to where I've had to have surgery. And there is nothing after watching that that can come close to comparing what that's like. But obviously, those are defining moments. And I remember those very, very clear. Almost to the point you can remember colors of walls and smells and, and different things that take your mind back there. Because you know in that moment... Your life will never be the same. Your life is going to change. All of us have those defining moments. All of us do. Now here's the thing. What do we do in those moments is what matters. Is what defines our life story. And the most significant moments in our lives are ones that we intersect with God. It's when our life plan's going this way and God's coming this way. And then those two things meet those are the most significant defining moments. So what do we do? What happens? What should we do? How should we respond? Well, if you open your sermon notes inside or if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it. We'll also show you on the screen as well. But I think David gives us a clear message of really kind of the 30,000 foot view overview of how we should respond in those moments for all of us. For all of us that are followers of Jesus, how should we respond in those moments when God's plans intersect with ours? Look together with me at Psalm 143, 8. It says, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I've put my trust in you. Look at the next phrase, show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. So the very first thing we see here is the defining moments choose our direction. They choose our direction. David says in this psalm, show me, God, show me the way that I should go. Not 
hey, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to go my own way. You see, that first step when we have that interaction with God, when we have that defining moment, that first step is so important. It's critical because it sets the course of our direction. It sets the course of where we're going. For example, I'm standing here right now, and if I thought to myself, I would like a cup of coffee. Now, that would be a little odd right now to actually even go get a cup of coffee, but you get the point. If I said, I'm going to get a cup of coffee, and this is the way I need to go get a cup of coffee, the first step sets my course in that direction. If I step this way, I'm automatically going the wrong way. Well, obviously, I'm going to go and step this direction. There's a story in the Bible that when we look at it, gives us an example of someone who stepped in the wrong direction. And it's a short little book, it's only about four chapters, and it's nestled away in the Old Testament, and it's the story of Jonah. And I believe we can look at this story, and this snapshot in Jonah's life, just this little small picture of his entire life, and it can give us valuable lessons for how we can choose the right path in those defining moments. So if you would, look in your notes again. It says, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And it says this, The Lord gave this message to Jonah of Amittai. Get up and go to the city, the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Notice the key phrase there, but Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. Now to give you a little bit of background, a little context of what's going on here, Jonah is a prophet. He's a prophet of God. God spoke through his prophets to his people in this time. Prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Up until this point, God had called his prophets to go and speak to his people within the country of Israel. This was the first time God was actually calling one of his prophets to go to a foreign land. You see, Nineveh was a Gentile city. Jonah was a Jew. Jews and Gentiles don't get along. So not only was God calling Jonah to go to a foreign country, he was calling Jonah to go to a foreign country with people who technically don't even like him because of he's a Jew. That city, Nineveh, was 500 miles away from Jerusalem. So here's God calling Jonah to go to a foreign land, to go to a people group that he's never seen or been around, who in its core doesn't like his people group, to, as God put it, announce my judgment against them. Now before we pass judgment on Jonah and what he did, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I don't know if I would get on the first plane out of here and do just that. It's not like God said, hey Jonah, you live in Cyprus You've grown up in Cyprus your whole life. You went to a high school in Cyprus. Go down to Katy and tell people in, that my judgment is coming. No. He's literally calling him to do something that is completely out of his comfort zone. And this right here is the defining moment in Jonah's life. He has a choice to make. The next step is so important. What sets the course of that direction? Well, we see, as we already have seen, that he ran, he went the opposite way. You see, many of us can relate to that, right? We come to that point where God is calling us to do something. Maybe he's calling you out of your comfort zone a little bit. 
Maybe you're sitting here today, and you've been coming to community of faith, and you, know, you like it here, you feel comfortable, and, and you feel God, and, and, but yet you feel like he's saying, okay, you need to do more. You need to step into more of what I'm doing. And it's going to get you out of your comfort zone a little bit. We had a mission team that just got back from Nicaragua last night, and they'd been here all week, and, and it was great to see the stories on social media and Facebook page, uh, of our, our COF Facebook page, about the, the experience that they had. And I saw over and over again the quotes of the people who went, and it said, this has changed my life, this is life-changing. I saw it over and over again. Well, definitely when they come back, I guarantee if you talk to them, they will tell you that that was a defining moment in their life. We have several more trips that are coming, and maybe God's calling you to step out of your comfort zone and to trust him and go on a trip like that. Or maybe he's calling you to join us in our local mission efforts. When you see things happen, you see things come across the screen, and you're probably thinking about different ways, but all of a sudden something catches you, and you go, I think I'm supposed to do that. And you check a box, and you feel like I'm going to do it. You drop in the response sheet. We call, but you let it go to voicemail. And you let it go to voicemail. And you let it go to voicemail. See, it's a decision point. It's a defining moment, just like this. God has a plan for your life, and it's where your plan intersects with God. And it's so critical about what we choose to do next. You see, when Jonah made that step away from God, he was technically disobeying. You only have one or two choices there. When God calls you to do something, you either obey or you disobey. And Jonah disobeyed God. Well, we know this, disobedience is a sin. And when disobedience is a sin, it always, storms will lead into it. Storms will always follow sin. Now, listen to me very carefully on this. Storms are not always caused by sin. All right? Storms sometimes come into our lives. They're not always caused by sin, but storms will always follow sin. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. Look with me, if you will, at Jonah 1, 15 through 17. Then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Now the story, if you remember, tells us that Jonah, when he ran from God, it tells us that he went down to the port called Joppa. Now Joppa, if you were looking on the map, was right on the coast of Israel to the Mediterranean Sea. Right here. He bought a ticket on a boat headed for Tarshish, which we believe was the southernmost point of what we would say now is Spain. On the far other side. So literally Jonah is trying to go from one side as far away as he possibly can in that moment. And what happens? The storms come. Even and if you look in chapter 1, the mariners, the sailors on that boat were even scared. It was, this was not like your normal average storm. This was a huge, scary, big, hurricane type storm. And we found out, just to kind of skip ahead, that eventually what happens is these sailors throw Jonah overboard. And I mean, this is it. You can imagine Jonah's thinking, this is it. How did I get here? I've run from God, and now I'm sinking. And then God, the Bible says, sent this big fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in that fish 
for three days and three nights. Now, if you're like me, when you first heard that, you know, you probably thought, really? Okay, I mean, come on. I mean, guys in a fish, I, okay, is this like a metaphor, one of those things? And so I decided this week to become the best marine biologist that I could possibly be. And if you're a marine biologist in the room, I apologize for not having great facts other than the ones that I have now. But a whale, do you know that a whale is the largest mammal in the history of the world? It is a fish. Did you know that? The average size largest whale is between 98 to 105 feet in length. Now, this stage from one side to the other, if you go from the edge of the stage over to that edge of the stage, is 67 feet in length. So let's just say 70 feet. The length of the largest whale is longer than the width of this stage. The average height of that whale is typically about 30 feet. If you take the, the bottom or the, the, sta- the edge of the stage and go all the way up to the catwalk, that's 30 feet. It's unique because when, a whale, when that whale opens its mouth fully, it can take up to 90 tons of food and water. 90 tons in its mouth when it's opened fully. And here's something I learned that I didn't know about. But that whales have this thing called a baleen plate. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's basically located in its jaw and it is used to sift food from the seawater. The average baleen plate, and it's not a tooth, it's just something in their jaw because it's so huge that can get the food in, not all that water, is 16 feet in height. Now this screen behind me from top to bottom is 16 feet in height. That's the size of a baleen plate in one of these whales. Now I'm 6'2", and the average Jewish man at this time of period in history was between 5'6 and maybe 5'9". Is it possible that a man that size could easily be swallowed whole in a fish that big? I think so. But here's what's important is that Jesus, thousands of years later in talking to Pharisees, did a favor for us and confirmed this story. Look at Matthew, and we'll see how he does this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. It says, one day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to show you to show us miraculous sign to prove our authority. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now look very carefully. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So Jesus confirmed it. Jesus himself said this happened. So guess what? It happened. So now that we're past that, let's go back and find out where Jonah is. So here's Jonah. He's in the belly of this whale. And I can't even imagine. It must stink. It must be horrible. I'm sure he's thinking, I'm going to die at any moment. And I'm sure the thought process entered his mind of how did I get here? You ever been there? I have. 
where you kind of make one bad decision after a bad decision after a bad decision, and you didn't try to dig your way out of it, but you can't quite dig your way out of it, and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of a storm, or all of a sudden you're in the middle of your belly in the, in the well moment, and you think to yourself, how did I get here? How did this happen? One of the things that Jonah had in that moment was the next defining moment. And that was the defining moment to respond. Because he had one response left before it was over. Was he going to cry out to God and ask God for help in that lowest, most desperate moment? What was his decision going to be? Look at Jonah 2, 5 through 7. It says this, I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. I have a friend of mine named James that has a very similar story uh, to Jonas. He'd had a relationship with God, and then for various reasons, God was calling him to do things, and he, and he turned, and he, and he just ran from God. And his story is such that as he ran, he made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And, and I want to show you his story, and as you watch this video, I want you to see if you can hear and pick out the defining moment that changed James's life. Go ahead. When I was about 20, 21 years old, I had my heart broke for the very first time. I had been loved so much until then. And for the first time, the religion that I was spoon-fed didn't work. So I moved off to the big city of Austin, Texas, where I basically went wild. I was not prepared for the world that I stepped into there. By the time I hit 30 years old, I already accepted that I was going to be one of those people that life just didn't make sense to. From that time, I began abusing alcohol. I began uh, abusing drugs, you name it, I did it. I felt I was, if I kept on the road I was on, that I would end up in prison, certainly because this God that I grew up hearing about that was loving and kind and merciful, I, I couldn't see that God. It was about that time where I fell into cocaine addiction very, very hard. When it overcomes you to a point where you can no longer function, even to a minimum level, the, the secret starts revealing itself. You, you can't fake it anymore. 
can't hide it. I was finally kicked out of my last option and I was on the street and I was, I was homeless, jobless, vehicleless. And I remember one evening waking up next to a blue dumpster. I remember looking at that dumpster and telling myself, this is my new home. But God had different plans for me. I came to my senses there and I realized that something had to change. So I began searching. In fact, I began demanding. I, I wanted to know if this God that was so amazing and so wonderful, why was he doing this to me? I, I began to feel God move in me in a way that I hadn't felt before. When I was 36, that's when I handed my life over to Christ. And I've learned that even in that, that last year, I was so angry and demanding and I wanted to know to him, that's music. He would rather us come to him screaming and hollering than to go somewhere else that can't do anything about the situation. It's funny that I made that decision and God opened up the rest of the pathway and I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that it was good, yeah. catch it? His defining moment when he had to respond, when he was forced to make a decision. Laying on the street, he said, I looked at a blue dumpster. Isn't it fascinating that in those moments we can remember details like that? Because we know in that moment, this is going to change my life for the good or for the better. I texted James yesterday, as you saw, they got married yesterday afternoon, and he and Jenny, his wife, were driving toward their honeymoon, and I just uh, texted him and told him happy wedding day and he texted me back and said we got to watch the service last night on, on our iPad and as Jenny had it on the iPad we realized that at the moment that video was showing we were driving through Austin <laughs> the place that I originally ran away from God to but this time as he said in his text I'm here in God's plan with my brand new wife how cool is that who but God could do that. Look at Jonah 2, 9 through 10. So Jonah had the same decision to make. And he said, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. I wish there was a way to tell you in a little bit easier way that what happened. So I hope you already had your breakfast. But if you did not, I apologize. It literally happened that way. But it's a very good lesson to be learned in that process. And James had to learn it as well. 
is that when we run from God and we finally stop like Jonah did and we turn and we say, God, save me, there's still a little bit more work to do. For example, let's imagine that this table is that intersection of your defining moment of where your plans and God's plans meet. And you come to that intersection and you take a turn and you go away like Jonah or like James or like many others have or like I have before. And you walk away from God and you go and you realize that all of a sudden I've been making my own decisions and now I don't know where I'm at. I'm lost, it's dark, you have your belly in the well moment or your blue dumpster moment. And you cry out to God and you say, I need you, I cannot do this. And your response is for God to save you. And you turn and you look back toward God. The reality of this is so true in all of our lives in that moment. And that is, we have to work to get back to our original position. You see, for some of us, when we turn and we cry out to God and we've done the right thing, we've got to do that. We want to automatically be back at the starting point. But the reality is, it can't happen that way. So there's a journey even in getting back to the starting point. There's a journey getting back to where you, God wants you to be. When James was at the blue dumpster, he didn't just stop and all of a sudden get back to where God wanted him. He had a long journey ahead of you. And if you knew the rest of his story, it was the same way. And Jonah was the same way. When he was in the belly, he had to get out of the fish. And it was nasty. And it was yucky. And it was hard. But each step that you take in getting back to that original position is a step in the right direction. So let me encourage you, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't stop. Yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit. God's got to strip away all the layers and all the things that, that you've put on there by moving away from him. But it's necessary to get back to the starting point. Don't quit. Don't be discouraged. In fact, in the book of James, it says, count it all joy when you experience trials and tribulations because that shows that God is working in your life. He is working out your faith. So let it prove one thing to you, and that is this, is that you are heading in the right direction when it hurts. You're heading where you need to go when, it has a little, when it's nasty, but you're going in the right path. Keep going down the right path. And then when you finally get back to that original starting point, that is the next defining moment, and that is this. It identifies our loyalties. It identifies our loyalties. Jonah 3, 1 through 3 says this. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. And he said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. Don't you think it's interesting that Jonah, even though he had repented, he had cried out to God, he was back to his starting point, that God still asked him, Jonah still had a choice to make. This time we see, and it tells us, that Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. Now, Nineveh was a large city, and thousands, and what happened, Jonah comes back, and thousands of people repent and come back to God. So God's promises were fulfilled, and exactly what God wanted to do happened, and Jonah was a part of that. But when you're back to this original point, your loyalties, it's really key here, show where your obedience lies. You see, we're obedient to what we're truly loyal to. We have a dog, it's a three-year-old Springer Spaniel. 
And I, you know, growing up, I didn't have much ex- great experience with dogs, and so I, you know, I just, I wasn't really thrilled when we were going to get a dog, but my kids wanted a dog, so I said, okay. Well, I have to tell you, because of this experience with this dog, and his name is Bo, all right, that I love dogs. I mean, this is the greatest, you think you have the best dog, no, you don't. I have the greatest dog on the planet. I'm not joking. You come to my house, you're there for a while, you will leave wanting to take Bo home with you, Okay. And he's, and he's, it's funny, he's just, it's like, he's three years old, but he's like a little grandpa soul. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. He never barks, and only he barks when he sees people coming up the driveway he doesn't recognize. And he's very obedient. Like, if I say, go to your kennel, he knows exactly what to do. If my son Brody says, you know, hey, open the doors, go out and potty, he'll go right out and come right back in. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But the one that has the most control over Bo in our house is Mama. Laney is the one that's really Bo's master. I can be on one end of the house, and Laney's on the other end of the house, and Bo's in the middle, and we're both going, come here, Bo, come here, come on. And I'm telling you, 10 times out of 10, that dog goes to mama. It's like it knows. It's most obedient to Laney because he's loyal to her. That's what we're talking about, is what are you loyal to when you're in those moments? And lastly... A defining moment will test our faith. It will test our faith. Just because you get to that point and you make the right decision doesn't mean that your faith will not be tested. It doesn't mean that it's going to be roses from here on out. No, it's going to be tested. And you're going to have to continue taking the next right step as you make those choices. And we see here as the story wraps up on Jonah... That his faith was a little bit tested and his response wasn't exactly the greatest. Look at Jonah 4, 1 through 3. It says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away from Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people, so just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Now, the first time I read that, I was like, are you kidding me? But Jonah's human, just like many of us. And many of us, even though we're following God, we still want it our way. Jonah wanted it done his way. And even in that moment, we've got to trust God and know that he's got a plan. And if you don't even know what that next step is, just trust him. It's his plan, not yours. It's not your way. It's not my way. It's his way. I've given you a definition of faith there in your program. And it's a definition that a mentor of mine several years ago gave me. And there's a lot of definitions for faith out there. And and there are some really good ones. And I'm not saying this is the best one. But I think it's a pretty good definition of how we should live by faith each and every day. And that is this, faith is choosing to completely believe in God's plan, regardless of our circumstances, emotions, or what is culturally popular. Now look at that, look at that definition, let's break it down. Faith is the first word you see, what? Choosing. So there's always a choice each and every day to live by faith or not live by faith. Choosing what? To completely believe in God's plan, not my plan regardless of our circumstances. Your circumstances will change. Sometimes it will be great. Sometimes it will get bad. 
But no matter what the circumstances are, are we going to choose to believe in God's plan? Regardless of our emotions, emotions aren't necessarily a bad thing, but the emotions are the caboose to the train of life. They come after faith. Faith is the engine. Emotions don't lead the train. But sometimes our emotions can go up, can go down. And if we're led by our emotions or we change with our emotions, we're changing like the wind. Is your faith rock solid in God's plan regardless of your emotions or what is culturally popular? In other words, God's calling you to do something. You know it, and but everybody around you, your friends, your family, everybody knows you. It's like, really? Are you sure you're supposed to do that? I'm not quite sure. You, you think that's really God's plan? Faith is doing it in spite of that popular culture. I want to close with another story of another friend of mine who I've known for most of my life, for all of my life, and at 17 years old, God called him uh, to work in, in his church, to basically be kind of like a pastor and go into, into ministry and, and, to, and to do that 17. He had this defining moment, his, his Jonah moment, so to speak. And he turned and went the opposite direction. And, and throughout his life, he didn't do anything crazy, but, but you know, he, he went to college and kind of made his own way and, and married and had kids and, and, you know, really wasn't truly living for God. He wasn't the actual best husband you could be. And he wasn't the best father that you could be. Made some financial decisions that really hurt his family for years and years and years. And he just kept making his own way and making his own way until finally he found himself like James by that blue dumpster. Like a moment like that. Sitting in a church service very similar to this at the age of 31, he remembered God clearly saying, stop running from me. When are you going to trust me? When are you going to follow me? And he completely in that moment at 31 years of age decided to let go and to finally stop running. I know that story because that story is mine. You see... At 17 years old, God had called me to do what I'm doing today, but I ran from that. I didn't want to do it. And I made decisions after decision after decision that it was just a bad decision, and I was lost. I mean, I was out there in the weeds. But at 31, at being miserable, I was like, I have got to stop. And from that moment on, when I turned, I had to get back to that point of that 17-year-old kid. And the journey wasn't easy. The journey was difficult at times. The journey was definitely hard for me and hard for my family. You see, because what happened was we, we sold our house. We were living in Knoxville, Tennessee in what would be considered our dream house, 2,500 square foot house. My kids were in private school. My, we were five miles away from all of my family. Life would, and seemingly was pretty great, but I was miserable because I wasn't doing what God had called me to do. And when we stepped out and we moved to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, I didn't have a job. I didn't know what was going to happen. My wife didn't have a job. We didn't have a place to live. But I knew God was calling us to go so that I could go to seminary and start this journey. My income was cut 80%. We moved into an apartment of 850 square feet. We had to sell all of our cars. And the only one we had left, the engine blew like six months later. Couldn't get it fixed. I bought a 1988 Buick LeSabre for $800 because it had a great engine, but it was literally rusting on the outside. I had to duct tape up the side of the things in my car. I'm not, I'm not joking. 
we had a sweet family in our church that gave us a gift card to a really like five-star restaurant in one year. And I remember we, were, we pulled up and it had valet service. And here's all these nice cars coming up. And here my wife and I are in this Buick rusted, I mean, it's, I'm not joking, rust, okay, on the body. And, and we bought, got up and I said, you know what, I'm just going to make fun, I'm going to have a fun moment with this. I got out of the car, the guy comes up the valet, I hand him the car and I go, hey, be careful with it. And we go in. You should have seen the look on the guy's face. He's like, what? <laughs> but let me, hear, let, me, let me tell you this. You fast forward now to 2017, 12 years later, and the life that God has given me and my family is far, far beyond anything that I could ever possibly imagine. I could have never written the script if I tried. And I'm telling you, from my heart to yours, God has a great plan for your life. Just trust him. Some of you in here, you've been feeling it. You know that God's tugging on your heart. And yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's frightening. But God has a great plan. It's a defining moment for you. Will you choose to follow God or carve your own path? Because those are the only two choices that you have. Would you bow with me, please? Just for a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we've said before, there's no accidents. There's not chance. God brought you here today at the end of spring break, at this moment and this time, for a reason. All of us in this room, not some of us, all of us in this room this morning have a decision to make. You're somewhere on that spectrum. I don't know where that is, but you do, and God does. It's not the question of where you are on that spectrum. It's the question of how will you respond to God. You can do that today. For some of us in this room, you haven't stepped into that relationship with Jesus. You've been coming for a few weeks and, and you feel God's presence. You're not quite sure how to define it. You're not quite sure what it's about. But you know it's real. You know it's true. And you know God's calling you to take that very first step and to step into a relationship with him. To begin that relationship right now. And I know it's scary. I know it's hard. But you know you have to do it. Why are you waiting? In just a moment, our prayers will be down front. I'm going to actually ask them to move down now and make their way to the front. These are folks who are just like you and me. They're not professional counselors. They're not professional pastors. They're just folks who are on that spectrum, who are on that line somewhere, who love God and are here to just pray with you, to listen. We've been doing this for the last several weeks at Community of Faith, and I really think this is a very special time where, where God has spoken to us, and it's an opportunity, an opportunity for us to respond to what he has said to us. So as our band sings in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down and pray with one of our people and just share your heart. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for this story, the story of Jonah, of what we can learn from this. God, I thank you that as a... 31-year-old man several years ago, you gave me a second chance, and you loved me enough to pick me up and dust the dirt off myself and just make something out of nothing. 
Father, I pray over this room right now. Let your Holy Spirit fill this place. Touch our hearts. In your name we pray. Would you stand? And as our band begins to sing.